Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset, seeking to learn from the leadership journey of change makers and business insights from leading global thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Paul Smith, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited, Paul. You have three best-selling books, including a couple we're going to spend time talking about today, Lead with a Story and the 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell. But before we get to that, we'd love to know whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing impacted who you've become. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio area now, but I was born and raised in the state of Arkansas. And I may be the first person you've ever met from that state. It's often the case with people. And I'm quite sure that had something to do with becoming who I am. You might detect every once in a while a little Southern drawl in my voice, especially if I'm talking to my dad. And it probably also affected my outgoingness or friendliness. The Southern people tend to pride themselves on being friendly and outgoing. And I hope some of that rubbed off on me. You still have some of that with you. And also, I am in Washington, D.C., Paul. Every president that comes to D.C. from whatever part of the country, whether it's Chicago or Arkansas, they bring a cohort of people with them that end up staying in D.C. region. Lots of people from Bill Clinton's time. You probably have met them, yeah. Yes, stayed in the D.C. area. Growing up in Arkansas, you ended up getting your Wharton MBA and working at PNG. What was your role at PNG? I was there for 20 years, so I had, had a number of roles. I actually started in finance and accounting role. So I was a finance manager of a number of different departments, and I had manufacturing plants in California and sales offices in Seattle. But then after about half of that time there, I switched into consumer research, market insights, and I finished my career out there. And my last job. I was in charge of our consumer research department for about a $6 billion global business unit, P&G's paper businesses, bounty paper towels and Charmin bath tissue and Puff's facial tissue, probably recognize those names. So I was in charge of consumer research for that global business for P&G. What was it that got you so interested in storytelling, Paul? It was a little bit of a, just a personal frustration. It started because I recognized that the leaders I admired the most inside the company the people that I wanted to work for, that I wanted to kind of grow up and be like in the company were really good at it. And that frustrated me because A, I didn't think I was, and B, nobody ever taught me how to do that. Here I went off and spent a lot of money getting this Ivy League MBA. Nobody taught me that there. They didn't teach me that at P&G when I got there. I spent a couple of years at Accenture as a consultant. They didn't teach me that there. Certainly didn't learn it in undergrad. That was frustrating because it was clearly important. And so I just kind of sat out on my own little personal learning journey and I started reading all the books I could find on the topic, still didn't know how to do it. And then I started interviewing leaders, again, who I thought were good at it, first inside the company and then outside the company. And somewhere along that journey, it stopped being my own little selfish learning journey and, and became an idea for a book. You know, I thought, gosh, if I want to know this that badly, maybe there are other people who do as well. It became an idea for a book. And that's what became Lead with a Story, which was the first book. Paul, why is it that we are so bad at telling our own stories? And especially leaders. And I'll tell you my observation interviewing leaders, and I've interviewed probably 300 or so CEOs, executives, 
leaders, hundreds of companies in 25 countries around the world now as part of the research for these books. I'll tell you my observation and see if it fits with yours. In many cases, the more senior the leader, the worse they are at storytelling because they default to wanting to give people advice and tell them what to do. Because that's their job. Once you're the CEO of the company, that's all you do is tell people what to do. And when I would sit down to interview these leaders for the book, I had to be very careful in the way I asked the questions, because if I wasn't, they would go back into default, give advice mode. And almost all their advice sounded the same after a while. It was, well, you know, Paul, if you want to be successful in my business, there's three things you got to do. You got to develop a great high quality product. You got to develop a fabulous marketing message to go with it. And you got to surround yourself with great people and a great team to get it done. And after about 15 or 20 CEOs told me that, I thought, you know, I think my 10-year-old kid could have figured that out. I mean, of course you want a great product and great marketing and great people. Like, that's just not newsworthy. But yet, that's what they've come up with. The real genius behind all of their successes is that they figured out exactly how to create that great product and the great marketing message and finding great people. But they tend to want to summarize their years and decades of advice into a few pithy little comments. And it comes out as something that is so commonsensical that it's just boringly uninteresting. So as soon as they started getting into advice giving mode, I would literally interrupt and go, let me ask the question a different way. Even though I didn't ask them for advice the first time, but I was sure not going to ask the second. Then I would start a question with these words. Tell me about a time when, and I would finish that with something. Because there's only one way to answer that question is for them to tell me a story. Tell me about a time when you made a huge mistake. You can't answer that question by going, well, you know, Paul, the three ways to be successful in my business, you just can't. You have to tell me about that time where you really screwed up or tell me about one of your biggest successes or tell me about the biggest surprise you ever had at work. Oh, that would have been the time when, you know, blah, but and then the stories come out. If you want stories, you don't ask for stories, by the way, because you'll get something different when you ask for stories. You have to ask them about a time when something happened, something in particular happened. And that will get them to tell you a story. But if you don't do that, they default to giving you advice. And most of that's boring. And that's a powerful question that you mentioned, Paul. Tell me about a time when I spent many years of my life, almost 25 years with Dale Carnegie Training, initially starting out in a training role, then sales, then running operations in DC, and then internationally. And one of the things we had to consistently, even in the Dale Carnegie course, work with people on is to think about an incident, a moment in time. And a lot of times people have a tough time talking about those moments in time. And as you mentioned, the higher up they go in organizations, the more general the view becomes and they communicate in generalities rather than specifics and stories. Before we go deeper into the story, what is your definition of a story? Is it just a moment in time or what makes for a good story? So what a story is, a moment in time is not a bad definition. I would take that. I generally say it's a narrative about something that happened to someone. So notice there's a someone in there. It's about a human being, not about some company or some general organization. And it's about something that happened to that person. That's my general definition. When I get more specific in a training course, I go, well, there are six elements that make up that definition. There's a time, a place, a main character. That main character has got a goal of some kind. There's probably someone or something getting in the way of that goal, a villain, if you will. And there are events that transpire along the way that hopefully resolve themselves in the end. Those are definitions of a story. 
those are the attributes that I think define a story from a speech or a piece of advice or an email or a presentation or some other form of communication. But those things don't make it a great story. If you play cards at all or poker, that's jacks to open. Those six things, if you don't have those six things, you don't even have a story. So it can't be a good story or a bad story because it's not even a story yet. You have to have those six things for it to even be a story. To make it a great story, you need to add some things to those six things, like a hero that your audience can relate to and a worthy challenge, some emotional engagement, an exciting structure to the story. So there are other elements. A surprise ending would be great. Those things take something that is a story and makes them a great story. But you got to start with those six things or the thing that you're talking about isn't even a story. That's part of the challenge, Paul. I had read Joseph Campbell's work back in business school. One of my professors, Robert Beast, really loved Joseph Campbell. And over the years, I understood the hero's journey a lot better and the role it plays in storytelling and in movie making of all kinds. But that's a very complex way of trying to help people understand the arc of a story. I'm glad you said that because I feel the same way. And I can't tell you how many people I run into that when I get to the part of the training course where I'm talking about structure, they go, oh, oh, are we going to use Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey? No. As you know, that's like a 17-step, very complicated call and return and all these. If you're going to write your first screenplay, knock yourself out with Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. If you're going to write your first novel, knock yourself out with that. But if you're going to try and tell a two-minute story at work, there is no way you're going to get through all 17 steps. And by the way, two or three minutes is what these business stories should be. To me, it's really four steps. Context, challenge, conflict, resolution. And if you really wanted to get it down even shorter, conflict, resolution. That's the heart of a story, conflict and resolution. Sometimes that's not informative enough for somebody to sit down and craft out a story. So I've got these eight questions that I typically teach people, if you answer these eight questions in this order, a story will emerge in the right format. It won't be as complex as the hero's journey, but it'll be good enough for a two or three minute business story. And we can talk about those if you're interested. In order to be able to do that, Paul, it requires for us to also have self-reflection in that these are not stories, even though they're a couple of minutes long that can just come to us at any moment in time. And we need to give it some thought. We need to reflect on the stories that can resonate with other people. So how do you guide leaders to try to dig through their past, think about their stories so they have those two, three-minute stories to be able to tell using the formula you just mentioned? Great question, because you don't start storytelling by figuring out the structure of a story. You start by figuring out what is your communication objective. I'm a leader in an organization. I've got some problem that I'm trying to solve for my team. And here's the solution. And I want to communicate it with a story or something. I want my team to be more creative and innovative, or I need to set a vision for the organization, or I need to lead change. Whatever your leadership challenge is, as you know, from lead to the story, there's 21 different leadership challenges in there. So you start there. What is my communication objective and who's my audience? And once you know what those two things are, then you go look for a story that will help communicate that communication objective. And that could be something from your past. It could be something 
from somebody else's past or something you saw happen, even though it didn't happen to you. It could be a story you heard somebody else tell. It doesn't matter. And in fact, most of the stories you tell shouldn't be about you. Otherwise, you're going to come across as pretty arrogant if all the stories you tell are about you. You start with the objective. Start with the end in mind. Then you go look for a, a story in your past or somebody else's past that will communicate that. And then you start working on the story, putting it together, use the right structure, use the right emotional engagement techniques, all that kind of stuff. But first, you got to figure out the objective and find a story. And let me ask you a more specific question. Yes. How do you find it? So there are three most productive places to look to find a story. Once you know what your objective is, what you want people to think, feel, or do. That's the way I describe it. You want people to think, feel, or do something different. Go look for a success, failure, or a moment of clarity around that thing that you want your audience to think, feel, or do. And you're likely to find a good story. there. A success is a time you've seen somebody do that thing really well. A time you've seen somebody do that thing, but really poorly and suffer the consequences. That's a failure. And then the moment of clarity is just the moment that you realize that's a really important thing to think, feel, or do yourself. Tell people what happened to you and then they'll realize it as well. Success, failure, or moment of clarity around the thing you want people to do is the best three places to go look to find a good story. And that is such a powerful lesson, Paul. I urge all the listeners to sit down and reflect on that. Those three are a great way for us to understand and come up with the stories that help us make the point that we want to make. The way you structure it and make it accessible. Like back to Joseph Campbell, whose work is brilliant. And I've referenced it many times with organizational branding and other areas. It is inaccessible to most people to understand how can I now use this, as you said, to tell a two, three minute story, which is what leaders have to do. The process you outline is accessible. Another point that you make, Paul, storytelling is about 10, 15% of the time. It's not as if as leaders, we're walking around needing to be telling stories all the time. Right. Wouldn't that just be weird? <laughs> just walking around telling stories all day. It might be fun. I'll admit that the 10 to 15%, I don't have a lot of science behind that. Although that's just been my observation after 30 years of being in the working world and 10 years of it dedicated to storytelling is you go to a meeting, say it's a one hour meeting, a good leader will tell two or three stories during that one hour, not 10 stories, not zero, probably more than one, maybe two or three stories. Each of these stories are two or three minutes long. You do the math. That's six to nine minutes out of an hour that a good leader might be telling a story. Well, that's 10 to 15% of the 60 minutes. That's kind of where I came up with it. I mean, could you be a really effective storyteller on only 7%? Yeah, sure. 20%? Yeah. 50%? Yee, yeesh, that's getting really high. I think it's somewhere south of 50 in the 10, 15, 20%. The reason I mention it is the frustration for leaders on either extreme in that on one end, they feel like they have to constantly be telling stories and that's not the case. And then on the other end, for many leaders who lack the ability to tell stories, they don't tell any stories. Part of what you're saying is you need to incorporate some stories, call it 10%, call it 15%, in order to add power to the points that you're making. And you also reference, Paul, a study that I ended up reading, it's fascinating. 
done by Rob Walker and Joshua Glenn with the objects they bought on eBay. The study was they went out and bought a hundred items from garage sales and flea markets and stuff, just cheap stuff, ashtray, nutcracker, a piggy bank. And then they sold all. And by the way, the average price they spent was a dollar and 29 cents. So they spent $129 on hundred items. Then they sold all of them on eBay. And you know how eBay works. You've got a picture of the item and a description and then people bid on it. They did that except, and they had the picture, but instead of the description, they just wrote these stories, these just interesting stories. And it was clear in the story that it was fictional story. They weren't like claiming that these items were any more special than they were because they weren't special. They were very unspecial items, but then they just put a silly little story with it. And they ended up selling these items for, I think it was something like a 3000% markup, whatever that math turned out to be. It's just a ridiculous return on their investment. And I think the obvious reason is because they had interesting stories attached to them and people weren't necessarily buying the item. They were buying a story. They were either buying an item with an interesting story attached to it or an interesting story with an item attached to it. But either way, the story is what made them special. And in every instance, I've mentioned that, Paul, leaders I talk to, family members, everyone immediately gets it. No one questions why people would pay more for the same item when it has a story associated with it. That's why it is a powerful example showing the value of stories. We make sense of the world around us. We value things more when there is a powerful story attached to it. That's why that's a great example to visualize that if we are not telling stories to make our points, then we are valuing that item at the dollar twenty-five rather than being worth a heck of a lot more. I'm glad you asked me about that. I love that example as well. Part of, Paul, what you also mentioned in your 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell is that in addition to understanding the importance of story, how to tell great stories, and the power of storytelling, there are certain stories that leaders need to be able to tell. As you mentioned in your Lead with Storybook, you had more, you had 17 of them, but you narrowed it down to the 10 stories that are important for leaders to be able to tell. Why did you narrow to these 10 before we talk about what those 10 stories are? My kind of starting list was more like 70, by the way. I think there are 21 different leadership challenges, leadership type stories and lead with a story. And then I wrote a parenting with a storybook and there's another 25. And my third book was sell with a story. So there's 25 sales and marketing type stories. If you add those up, it's somewhere around 70. And at some point I just got challenged. Like, Paul, that's, that's a lot of stories. I'm new at this. Come on, where do I start? And that was a fair challenge to me. And I sat down to think about, well, if I had to pick 10, let's pick 10. What are the most important 10 for a leader to share? And my criteria for finding those was, first of all, there are stories that my clients most frequently ask me for help on. After 10 years of working with senior executives and storytelling, the 10 I wanted to come up with would have to be ones that I knew executives wanted to be able to tell. That tells me that these are practical or in-demand stories. Secondly, I wanted stories that would last a long time, meaning that they would be stories you could tell over and over and over again and get value out of it. So they wouldn't be things that would need to change frequently. For example, the vision story is one of them, your company's vision story. Your vision shouldn't change more than every five or six years. It shouldn't stay the same always, but it shouldn't change every few months. 
If you come up with a good vision story, you can tell it over and over and over again for a while. Same for your strategy story. Strategy shouldn't change every month, but you may be going through some particular change that requires something and that story may be useless in a few days. Lastly, I wanted stories that I knew were in areas where leaders needed to exert some influence in an organization. There could be stories that met those other two criteria, but they just weren't important areas for senior leaders to engage on. I'm glad you narrowed it down to 10, Paul, in that for you, you live storytelling. For most leaders, they want to use storytelling as a vehicle for effective communication. Narrowing it down to 10 makes your concepts more accessible and easier for them to actually implement in their daily interactions, which is a key part of the value that you bring. It's not the knowledge from the book that someone reads and says, aha, now I understand, if they can't then do something differently as a result of it. So what are those 10 stories? First of all, let me just recognize that the goal of that book was to be very accessible. In fact, it was designed to be read in about an hour. So the 10, the first four go together because they're about setting the direction for the organization. That's where we came from. That's our founding story. Why we can't stay there, that's a case for change story. Where we're going, which is a vision story, and how we're going to get there, which is a a strategy story, because a strategy is about how you're going to get from where you are now to where you want to be. Imagine you're a leader and you can tell those four stories. You're much more likely to get the organization to go where you want them to go because you can easily and in a human, compelling, visceral manner explain to them where we came from, why we can't stay there, where we're going, and how we're going to get there. The next four go together as well, but they're more about who we are as an organization. That's what we believe. That's a corporate values story, corporate values and ethics story. Who we serve, that's a customer story, a story about the customer so that everybody at the organization can have a more human understanding of the ultimate boss that you're all working for. What we do for our customers, which is kind of a classical sales story. So a story about what your company does that's so awesome, people should pay you money to do it. The number eight, is how we're different from our competitors. I call that a marketing story because it's often the marketing department's job to differentiate you from your competitors. Again, if you can tell those four stories, you're much more likely to be able to explain who your company is, you know, what you believe, who you serve, what you do for those customers, and how you're different from your competitors. And, and by the way, just because I call those last two a sales story and a marketing story doesn't mean that only the sales VP or the marketing director should tell those stories at all. All of these stories are stories that I think every leader at a company should be able to tell. Now, if you work in the marketing department, you ought to be able to tell lots of marketing stories. If you work in the sales department, you ought to be able to tell lots of sales stories. But if you work in any other department, you ought to be able to tell one good sales story and one good marketing story and one of all the rest of these two, which by the way, was one of my other criteria that I forgot of how I picked them is I wanted them to be stories that every leader, no matter what functional discipline they come from, that they'd be relevant for them. But if you're keeping track, there's two left. All right, number nine, 10. And these are more personal to you, the leader. Nine is why I lead the way I do. That's a personal leadership philosophy story. And number 10 is why you should want to work. That's obviously a recruiting story. And those two stories are important because every leader's job is finding talented people and bringing them into the organization and having them stay and follow your leadership. Again, that's not just the job of HR or the recruiting department. Every leader needs to be able to tell at least one of those type of stories as well. 
And that I think is a pretty good starting place for a leader to start to develop some storytelling skills. It is. And every one of those 10 are essential stories that leaders at all levels of the organization should be able to tell. I would love to touch on a couple of them, Paul, based on the leaders I interact with, some of the senior leadership teams that I coach and guide. Many are pretty good at the where we came from story. They understand and have been telling that over and over again, sometimes helped by their PR departments and others, but still those stories are really good. One of the areas that I find they have difficulty with is why we can't stay there in that in many instances, they're celebrating so much the where we have come from and the heritage of success that we've had. The why we can't stay there is where they face some difficulty. And with respect to that, I had a conversation with John Cotter. He talks about the mistake leaders make in change in talking about the burning platform. What are some of your thoughts with respect to how leaders can better tell the why we can't stay here stories? I agree. It's often difficult for them to tell. Most leaders' reasons and justification for doing anything often comes down to some financial metrics. Well, this is going to increase our sales or it's going to increase our profit margins or it's going to increase the stock price or it's going to be a high net present value project or high ROI or whatever. You need those in business and those are great decision-making criteria and planning criteria. But when it comes time to inform and motivate the organization, those things are often not very effective. And some of that's because oftentimes the employees whom you have to motivate and have to internalize the reason for these change, the shareholders of the company, they're not the ones who are going to benefit from higher sales and higher profits and better ROI and higher stock price and all that kind of stuff. But it's not very motivating to them. And even for people who do have a financial stake in the company, it's not the most motivating thing to say, I really can't wait to get up and go to work tomorrow so that I can improve our quarterly profits by 3%. That's not the kind of thing that gets most people out of bed in the morning. The kind of thing that gets most people out of bed in the morning is being able to make a difference in somebody's life, whether it's theirs or, or other people's. And that's why the example that I used in the book was for a pharmaceutical company, it might be the story of one person whose life you saved or whose life you might save. Most of us don't work at places where we make a life-saving product. That's a little bit unfair. And I understand that. But everybody works at a company who does something that helps people. There's no company in the world that doesn't do something that helps somebody do something. And to find these case for change stories, what you're looking for is one of those human beings, whether it's one of your customers or your employees or somebody else's customers or somebody else's employees or your family or somebody somewhere is benefiting personally from the use of your product and would benefit from the change that you're trying to make in your organization because it'll make your product or service better or more affordable or make the world a better place or something. Find out who that person is and tell a story about them. Tell a story about their life before you make this change and then how their life is going to be after you make this change. And like I said, it could be the employees of the company. The change we're going through is really just to make your jobs easier. I'm going to tell a story about Sally in Accounts Payable who works 60 hours a week to get her job done. And we're going to put in this new accounts payable software. She can go home at the end of the day at five o'clock instead of nine o'clock at night. So she can see her kids and spend time with her husband and have a weekend to herself instead of having to work all weekend. And 
it's going to take a lot of work to put in this new software. It's going to be two or three months of a lot of work, but the payoff is for you and people like Sally and tell her story. Those case for change stories are stories about the people who will benefit from making the change that you're recommending, not about financials, no numbers, no dollar signs. You already have that and you're probably already using that. This is the people side of the equation. And I wonder, Paul, how this relates to the purpose of the organization and can the numbers reached be a part of this? So I'm trying to understand this process. Someone working in a financial institution that is trying to provide funding to people in the community, they would give an example of an individual who has benefited from this funding and started their business, would we can do a lot more of this, be part of their story? I think a more effective way would be to tell a story of somebody who did not get that funding or whatever that they were providing. This is where it would be a failure story. Let me tell you about somebody who quit their company. They had a passion to start this new business or they dropped out of school just to go start this company and they got six months into it and ran out of cash. They had a fabulous idea and a wonderful product and everybody was pulling for them and they went bankrupt in the first six months. And they went back to school and went back to their old crummy old job with their crummy old boss in their crummy old office and they never started a business ever again. We could have changed that. We could have helped that woman today be a successful CEO entrepreneur, but we didn't. And we didn't because of these five reasons. And I wanna change all five of those reasons so that she or people like her can be successful. Failure stories are probably more effective in the case for change than success stories. I love that, Paul, because it's also focused on the users, on the community, on others, rather than being self-focused. So it's not, we can't stay there because we want to grow it's we can't stay there because of the impact on the community and the lack of impact if we stay there. Being other focused on other people is almost always more motivating than being me focused. In fact, I think I put this in one of my recent books. Somebody had done a study where there was a telemarketing company and they tried some tests before their telemarketing shift. They brought everybody into a room 10 minutes before. And one group, they read them stories about how their job that they have in telemarketing is going to help them be more successful in the future when they get different jobs and they get out of college someday and go become a boss somewhere. They're going to be much better at it. That was one group. The second group, they read them stories about people who benefited from the thing that they were telemarketing. I think they were raising money for some charity or whatever. They read them stories about the people who were on the receiving end of the benefits of these charitable donations and what a difference it made in their lives. And then the third group was a control group that they brought them in there just to have a cup of coffee for 10 minutes and then go start your work. They didn't do anything other than the coffee. And it should be no surprise to you that the control group that just drank the coffee, their sales didn't change because they didn't do anything different. The first group, their sales actually went up. Okay, the group that was told how much you are gonna benefit personally, not just the money we pay you, but you're gonna benefit from having this kind of experience. So their sales went up. The second group though that, got told stories about other people doubled from that number, even stronger sales growth. That turns out to be more motivating to most people, learning how their work is benefiting others, not just themselves. That's a powerful example of 
how the why we can stay there can work most especially when focused on the other people. Now, another one of the stories, Paul, where I see a lot of leaders having difficulty with is the why I lead the way I do, in that it requires a certain level of authenticity. It requires going beyond the standard press releases and standard PR coaching that some of the leaders have gotten. How would you guide leaders to effectively tell their own story, why I lead the way I do? I think here I've just got to give you an example. That's the best way to learn this. This one came from a guy named Mike Figliolo, and his first leadership experience, he went to West Point. He's a military guy, U.S. Army, or was at that age. His first real leadership opportunity was in the military, and it was in a training exercise where he was going to be commanding a platoon of several other Army soldiers in the tank. And it was just a training exercise. It was out in California. They're on a 10-mile long, 5-mile wide training field. 400 tanks lined up on this side of the field and 400 tanks lined up on that side. And they're going to go into battle together. But of course, they're not going to shoot live ordinances at each other. Their gun turrets have been outfitted with laser pointers with some receivers on the tank so that they know when they got virtually shot. Anyway, he happens to be assigned to be the leader of the first tank that's going to go into battle on his side of the field with 399 other tanks behind. Of course, the night before the exercise, he sits down with the commanding officer and they look at a map terrain and figure out where the high ground is so he can have best odds of winning the exercise. The next morning, the exercise starts and he's in his tank and racing out onto the field at 40 miles an hour, however fast those tanks go. And he gets to the first place where he's got to make a decision to turn left or turn right. And he just doesn't know what to do. I guess a battlefield looks different when you're looking at it through the crack in that hatch of a tank bouncing up and down at 40 miles an hour than it does on a map in a conference room. He's got a decision to make. He can either stop the tank turn the light on, get the map out, figure out the right thing to do, which might take, I don't know, 30 seconds. Or option two is he could just guess. Mike chose option two. He yells out, driver, turn left, even though he has no idea if that's the right thing to do. The driver turns left. A few seconds later, the light inside of his tank starts flashing, which means you just got shot by a laser. You're dead. They got to stop the tank and pop the hatch. Those guys are done for the day. Well, a few seconds later, tank number two turns left right behind him because that's their job. Follow the leader, right? Well, then their light starts flashing. They're done. Well, tank number three turns left and their light starts flashing. But the guys in tank number four saw three tanks turn left and get virtually shot and killed. They realized that was a mistake. Tank number four turned right. And then 396 other tanks turned right. They took the high ground and won the exercise. Mike made a mistake that day. He turned left when he should have turned right. Leadership mistake. But he learned a valuable leadership lesson from that. And that is this. Sometimes it's better to make the wrong decision quickly than make the right decision slowly. Because just imagine what would have happened if he had chosen option one, stop the tank, turn the light on, got the map out. There'd have been 400 tanks lined up getting picked off one at a time. But because he turned left and things went wrong, people realized it and they could monitor and adjust. And the same thing happens in business all the time. We get so paralyzed with analysis paralysis. We'll be analyzing a situation for months before we decide what to do. And that whole time, our competition is still moving forward. Sometimes it's better just make a decision, make an informed decision, educated guess. And if you're wrong, you'll find out. Life, like war, like business, has a way of letting you know that you made a bad decision and you can change it. That is an example of a leadership philosophy story because it explains 
why Mike is a decisive leader today. It explains why he has become the leader, why that is one of his leadership philosophies is that it's better. And now he could explain that to you by just saying, look, I'm a decisive leader and I got that way because I believe that sometimes making the wrong decision quickly is better than making the right decision slowly. And that sounds like a nice little bumper sticker, but what does that mean? And why should I believe that? And it just, it raises more questions than it answers. But by telling you the story, which is his leadership philosophy story, not his leadership philosophy, it's easy for anybody to understand. And by the way, that's just one. Like every leader probably has multiple principles that they follow in leadership. And they probably learned all of them from something that happened. And so you might need four or five or six of these leadership philosophy stories to really fully kind of articulate why you became the leader you became and what your leadership philosophy is. But guaranteed for your audience listening, things like that have happened to them that have shaped who they are as a leader and how they lead. And those are the stories you need to get back in touch with so that you can tell them to. Thinking about those leadership philosophy stories, Paul, is it best to focus on leadership philosophies that the story is an example of a setback or a failure or an example of success? How do you guide leaders as they're reflecting on leadership philosophies? Because I imagine you can come up with different kinds of stories that communicate the same leadership philosophy. Is it dependent on the leader's style or do you have guidance with respect to the type of stories leaders should seek in being able to tell their leadership philosophy story? I think you need a mix of them. I think these kind of leadership philosophy stories, like case for change stories, often work better as failure stories than as success stories, but you definitely need a mix. What you don't want to have for sure is all of them be success stories. Because again, that just sounds like you're bragging. Most people don't want to work for a braggadocious, self-absorbed leader. And if all you do is walk around telling success stories, that really is going to be how you come across. The other reason why failure stories work particularly well for leaders in general is that it's humanizing and shows some vulnerability. And most importantly, it shows your organization that you're more interested in nurturing their growth and development than you are about protecting your own ego because you're willing to share your failures specifically so that the people who work for you don't have to make the same mistakes you made. Insecure, ingracious leaders hide their failure stories. They don't want anybody to know that they've ever made a mistake. They want people to think that they're perfect. And that's the kind of leader nobody wants to work for. They'd rather work for the leader that will say, Oh, of course I'm human. I make mistakes all the time. Let me tell you the three biggest mistakes I ever made. One of them got me fired. Like everybody wants to hear those stories, right? Because they want to avoid making those three big mistakes and avoid getting fired. Please, leaders, please tell your failure stories. Your people will appreciate it. Part of this is, Paul, once you go through this and read the 10 stories great leaders tell, once you go through it, and think about a couple of stories for each one of the elements that you mentioned, then you have your stories. It's not as if every single day you wake up and you have to come up with new stories to tell. There are instances where you can use new stories and come up with new stories. But in most instances, whether it's where we came from, why we are or how we are different from our competitors, why I lead the way I do, these are stories that leaders can incorporate after they have a good sense of what that story is, can incorporate in their communication 
repeatedly, whether communicating internally and representing that future for the organization and their team members or communicating externally. These stores are good both inside and outside the company. It's kind of obvious, I think, when you look through them, which is which, like your strategy story, that's typically an inside thing, right? You typically don't go out telling your strategy to the world, but you will tell a recruiting story, obviously, is almost always an external story, not an internal story. There's a mix of, of both of those in this list. So when leaders start telling their stories, Paul, how can they make their stories more memorable and more impactful? First of all, being more memorable will make it more impactful because if people don't remember your story, obviously it's not going to have any future impact on them. One of those things is a big avenue to get the other one. And the main thing that makes stories more memorable, believe it or not, is a surprise. Surprises in a story, often a surprise ending in a story. Like, you know, you love a surprise ending in the movies you watch and in the books you're reading. But a surprise plays an even more important role in leadership stories. And that is that it makes it more memorable for a very physiological reason. And that is that when humans are surprised, it triggers a release of adrenaline in their system. And adrenaline is shown what psychologists call the memory consolidation process, faster and more efficient. Literally, when somebody is surprised, everything that happens for the next 30 seconds, minute, two minutes, three minutes, as long as that adrenaline is still kind of coursing through their body, their memory is heightened. They're going to remember what happens during those few moments better than when they did not have a rush of adrenaline. Having a surprise in your story triggers that adrenaline release, which makes everything else that's about to happen in your story up to and including the end of the story and the lesson and the recommended action that you want them to take. It serves a very practical purpose to put a surprise in your story because it'll make it more memorable and that will make it more impactful. Paul, every story can have an element of surprise. It's not as if this needs to be something that is drastically different than your regular storytelling. You can change the structure of the story to have an element of surprise in it. In fact, all of these techniques to improve story, they're techniques and you can apply them to almost any story. You don't have to pick, oh, I need to pick a story that's got a surprise in it. Well, no, just make any story, but then make it surprising. But just by using these techniques, by way of example, Matt, at one point, a nine-year-old boy named James, nine-year-old James is in the kitchen with his mom and his mom's sister. While mom and auntie are sitting at the kitchen table having a cup of tea, James is standing at the stove watching the tea kettle boil. And he's just fascinated with it. He's watching the jet of steam come out of the kettle and he's got a spoon. He holds it up there into the jet of steam and watches as little drops of water condense on the spoon. And they trickle down into a cup that he's got sitting there so it doesn't make a mess in his mom's kitchen. And he's just watching that cycle go over and over and over again. Just fascinated with it. Eventually, his mother gets tired of him you know, just hanging out in the kitchen. And she barks at him. She's like, James, go do your homework. Read a book. Ride your bike. Aren't you ashamed of yourself just staring at the tea kettle boiling for an hour now? Fortunately, young James was undaunted by his mother's admonition because 20 years later, at the age of 29, of course, and in the year 1765, James Watt reinvented the steam engine, ushering in the industrial revolution that we, of course, all benefit from today and all based on that fascination with steam that he developed at the age of nine in his mother's kitchen. I know you read that story, so you knew it already, but most of your audience who are listening to us today, unless they happen to be a history buff, were probably surprised at the end of that story that it turned out to be, oh, that was James Watt, the guy who invented the steam engine. But ask yourself, why was that a surprise? And the reason it was a surprise, because that story, I didn't just make up that story. That, I read that story 
in a book titled James Watt. It was written in 1905 by Andrew Carnegie. It was a biography of the inventor of the steam engine. Of course, it was no surprise to me at all that the story in chapter one about nine-year-old James was about the guy who was going to grow up to invent the steam engine. The whole book was about James Watt. But again, you're, to your audience, unless they're a history buff, they probably were surprised because I didn't tell you his last name. And I didn't tell you the year either. Two of the things that I coach my audience in that structure, those eight questions you have to answer in a story, two of the early questions are where and when did it happen and who was the main character? And I answered them, but only partly. I told you where it happened, mom's kitchen, but I didn't tell you when it happened. And I told you his first name, but I didn't tell you his last name. That's the technique. You withhold a part of the information that you're supposed to give the audience that they're expecting to get at the beginning of the story and don't give it to them until the end. And it creates a surprise ending just magically. And you really can't do it with almost any story. And it makes it really powerful. I love that story because as you say, Paul, it shows that by slightly rearranging some of the information, you make what can seem like a normal sounding story. If you had started out by saying James Watt, founder of the steam engine, was in his mother's kitchen, that wouldn't have had the same excitement, same surprise ending, wouldn't have been as memorable. When leaders think about the stories they tell, it's the same story. At times, it's just leaving out a couple of elements until the very end that makes it a surprise. They don't need to be scriptwriters, movie writers. With the 10 stories that you share in your book, leaders can, with some reflection and a little thought put into it, become great storytellers of memorable stories and get much more engagement. That's the goal for sure. Paul, in addition to your own book, are there any leadership resources you typically find yourself recommending to leaders as they want to understand the process of storytelling and how to do it more effectively? There are a lot of books out there. If you're somebody who likes to learn by reading, buy some books on the topic. And I've just written some of them. There are lots of others and there are some very good ones. But people learn a lot of different ways these days. And thank goodness that we have a lot of options. Watch a YouTube video take a training, online training course, go to an in-person training course, hire a coach. The analogy I use is if you woke up one day and decided you wanted to learn how to play the guitar, what would you do? Would you just go buy a guitar and put it under your bed and hope that by osmosis, you'd just wake up one morning knowing how to play the guitar? Of course not. You'd go take guitar lessons from somebody who knew how to play the guitar. But it's the same with storytelling. It's an art, not a science, but you can learn it. Just like you may not be musically inclined, like I'm not musically inclined. But I'll bet if I wanted to learn to play the guitar, I probably could by following a proven method for learning it and getting somebody who knew how. It's the same with storytelling. If you treat it like any other business skill that you want to acquire, then you will acquire it, which means reading some books, taking some classes, emulating somebody who does it well, all three of the above. That's the main advice is treat it like a real serious leadership skill and invest some time and resources into learning it. That's why, while it's important to watch great speakers and tell those great stories, I think we need a structure. And what you've done in your books is provide a structure so leaders can find a way to tell these stories effectively because their role is not storytelling. They need to be able to use storytelling in their roles. How can the audience find out more about what you do, Paul? connect with you, and also find out more about your books. 
Yeah, thanks. Probably the best place to do all of those things is on my website. The links to the books and the training courses and things are there. That's uh, leadwithastory.com, just the name of my first book. I really appreciate the conversation, Paul, most especially the fact that you've gone beyond just talking about why storytelling is important and how to do it well. You've broken it down to make it accessible. And that's really important. In your book, you also say stories move us, they engage us, they inspire us. Stories give us examples of how to act and how not to act. The best ones stay with us forever. Thank you, Paul Smith, for helping leaders that listen to this podcast be able to tell stories that will stay with their team members, organizations, and the community. Thank you so much for joining the conversation, Paul Smith. This was fun. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.